Welcome to the Sunday Sermon with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Today we continue our study of unusual prophecies that lead to the birth of Christ with our message, David wants to build God a house. So grab your Bible and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to see your hand at work through history and our lives. Open our hearts and minds so that we may learn something new today, something that draws us closer to you. In the name of Jesus, our precious Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Here's the Sunday Sermon on Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Now, if you have your Bible, you want to turn with us to 2 Samuel, the 7th chapter. That's where we begin. Now, we have been looking at prophecies that relate to the birth of Christ, prophecies that are customarily passed by because they are not as specific and definite. Now, we've looked so far at prophecies that relate actually to the seed, beginning with Eve, God's prophecy, not to her, but to the serpent, but relating to her, the seed of the woman. We followed that down to Abraham, Abraham down through Isaac, down through Jacob, and then Jacob had 12 sons, and it would be a problem, which son would it be? We saw that God picked out Judah. Now, by that time, you have established in the line of this family, these people, Israelites, by the time that they're in the land of Egypt, that through them, and specifically now through one tribe, there is coming the deliverer that God first announced to Eve. And the pattern is pretty well set. Now, what would be, having come this far, and had you lived at that particular period, you believe the Word of God that this is going to come to pass, what would be your viewpoint? Well, I imagine it would be something like this. Suppose you lived in the days of Samuel, before David was born, and you had gone to Samuel, and you said, Samuel, from your study of the Word of God, and they only had the Pentateuch and Joshua and Judges at that time, that's probably all that was in existence, says, from your study, what conclusion do you come to? Well, he says, obviously God is sending the Messiah and a Savior into the world. He promised that to Eve. And as the line moves down, it was put in the line of Abraham. And then down through that line, not just any son, but Isaac. And then not just any son of Isaac, because Isaac had two sons. And Esau was set aside, and Jacob was chosen. Now he says Jacob had 12 sons, and God has reached in and put his hand upon Judah. Now, Judah's a tribe now among our people here in the land. The next step is we are looking for God to move among that tribe. That's where he'll move the next time. Wouldn't that be a reasonable conclusion to come to, that God's going to move now into the tribe of Judah? Well, may I say to you, that's exactly what God did. He's going to move now into the tribe of Judah, and he's going through that tribe to bring into the world the Savior. And actually, it's that story of Ruth that brings Judah 
and the family of David together. And without that story, you would not have that proper connection that you have there. So that the tribe of Judah is joined to David, or better still, David is identified now with the tribe of Judah through the little book of Ruth. But God is going to break through now, and his next move will indicate not to a tribe, but to a family. Do you see how God's moving? Through a race. From a race to a nation. From a nation to a tribe. From a tribe to a family. And then when you come to Bethlehem, it's from a family to what? An individual. And the angel will go to Mary specifically. You are the one. Now, these people were very conscious of that. The godly Israelites were conscious of the fact that coming down in their line, there's coming one. And the very interesting thing is, that was a great expectancy that had arisen throughout. Actually, not only among these people, but throughout the world. In spite of all of the terrible condition of the Roman Empire, where all of the philosophy and the religion, everything was degrading to man, and it looked as if hope was gone with half of the empire in slavery. It seemed that there was no hope at all. But throughout the world, there was that hope that was burning, that there was coming one into the world. Now, we come tonight with that preliminary statement to Second Samuel 7. Now, God up to this point had not indicated other than one thing. God had indicated that Saul, King Saul, was set aside. And God takes this little shepherd boy, yonder on the hills of Bethlehem, red-headed fella, may I say to you, a hot-blooded fella, by the way, and a man of deep, abiding passion, but a man who had a love for God. Here's a man who had a deep desire for God, to know him and to belong to him and to somehow or another serve him. And you can criticize David all you want to, but I wish we could find more people today that have the desire for God. I would say today that is the thing that's lacking in the church today, that lack of desire for God, for him personally. Now, David is a big man. Here is a man that, when he walks across the page of Scripture, he's a man that has a great capacity for God. He happens to be God's man. And God said of him, he's a man after my own heart. Now, God took him from that shepherd field and put him now on the throne, led him in a very difficult path. God trained him, and it was God's method to train him. Have you ever noticed he trained all of his men in a hard place? Now, this man, David... God's going to train him. God gave him hard, rigorous training. Made him a man, by the way. Now David has come to the throne, and Saul is dead. He now is established as king. He moves into Jerusalem. Jerusalem was David's city, and it was our Lord's city also. It's the city, our Lord said, of the great king. And we're told this, chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. It came to pass when the king sat in his house and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in an house of cedar 
but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. Now this is, this is David. He's moved into the palace. And I think that it must have been a rainy night. Old David crawled into bed and he could hear the rain, you know, patting down on the outside. And he got thinking. He said, you know, the ark of God is out yonder in a tent. And here I'm a shepherd. I was a little shepherd boy and he's made me king and here I'm living in a palace. Now, you see this man's heart? He wants to do something for God. And notice what he says. And the king said unto Nathan, the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains, just a tent, and that's in Congress. It ought not to be that way. I ought to build God a house. And it was in David's part to build the temple. And that's the reason I say, don't call it Solomon's temple. He never had one except up here on the side of his head. But David is the one who conceived the idea of building the temple. That was his idea. Now, here is a case where a prophet is wrong, and old Nathan's wrong. Nathan said to the king, Go do all that's in thine heart, for the Lord's with thee. You can understand it. this man, the prophet. It's a good work, isn't it? And it's a good thing to do, to build God a house. Nathan couldn't see any reason to go to the Lord and get a special revelation on this, but he should have because he's wrong. When God had to correct him, it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me an house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. And this, by the way, happens to be quite wonderful. God says, I never asked that they build a temple. God adopted the methods of his people. I want you to notice something here. When they went through the wilderness, he went through the wilderness with them. They lived in a tent. They met him in a tent. Now, don't misunderstand. God never dwelt in a tent and he never dwelt in a temple either. That's paganism. That's not the word of God. But that's where he met with them. In other words, God always identified himself with his people. Does that explain Christmas to you? Why did he take upon himself humanity yonder at Bethlehem? In order that he might identify himself with us down here. That's the reason that he did. So that what you have here is the Lord saying, I never asked for this. I never asked you to build me a great temple. And one of the things when you travel that makes your heart almost sick is to see come to some little poor village, and I mean poor, and the people are living poverty-stricken, and there is a great cathedral, ornate. God never lives like that. If the people are living down there in little hovels, that's where God's going to live. God's going to identify himself with his people. He always does. Oh, how wonderful this explains the incarnation. Now he says, I never asked for this, but it's in David's heart. He wants to build me a house. Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, 
spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me a house of cedar? You know what God's doing? He's giving David credit for it. This is David's idea. He's going to do something for God that God has not commanded. May I say this to you tonight? I hear a great deal of argument today about we are to give a tithe to God. God commands it, and we are to give a tithe. All right, if that's the way you want to give, you give that way. But may I say this to you tonight? You only get credit in this day of grace of what you give that he does not command you to give. David got credit for this because it was his idea. God never commanded it. My friend, in your giving, you ought to give out of a heart and not out of a commandment or a duty or a necessity or for some other motive. It should be from the heart. My, what a picture we have here. Now will you notice. Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David. Now this is the message for David. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And may I say, that's God's method, taking them from the sheepfold, from the hillside, from the sheep, to be a shepherd over his people. All of God's men have been shepherds, if you will notice. And even the Lord Jesus, remember, said he was a shepherd. In fact, he said, I'm the good shepherd, and I'm the great shepherd, and he's the chief shepherd. Now he says, and I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest. And I've cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight and have made thee a great name like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Now God reminds David what he's done for him. He said, David, I took you when you were a nobody, when you were a little shepherd boy out on the hillside. I took you and I have brought you now to this position. And David just happens to be one of the great rulers of the earth. You can't displace him. Moreover, listen now, God tells him what he's going to do. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And God has not made that good. And I'm not being irreverent or unbelieving in saying that. I'm just saying up to tonight, God has not made that good. He's made everything else good, literally, and he'll, I think he'll make this good. May I say one of the most explosive spots on this earth happens to be the border of the nation Israel. They're not dwelling in peace, for a very definite reason, by the way. But the day is coming when the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. Now will you notice as he moves on, and as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee, and I love this, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. David, you want to build me a house? You can't do it, boy. You got bloody hands, but you got the idea, and it's your idea, and it's from your heart. I'm going to give you credit for it, but I can't get in debt to anybody, and God never gets in debt to anybody. So you want to build me a house? God says, I'm going to build you a house. And I just like the Lord. You can't do anything for him. Why do you want to turn around and do something for you? He says, I'll build you a house, David. Now he's going to build David a house.
I think probably we better look at something right at this particular point because we're coming now to the important part of this chapter. House is the first word. It occurs here in 11, 13, and 16. And now the house here refers to that royal family of David that will follow after him. Now will you notice, we'll come to this again. God says, I'm going to make thee a house. And when thy days be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. It'll be after you die, David. It was made very clear to David, God would not fulfill this with David for several reasons. Of course, because he was a bloody man. He couldn't even build the temple. And God says, this will not be fulfilled with you. But there is coming in your house, in your family, and God's going to spell it out. When thy days be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. I will set up thy seed after thee. Seed goes all the way back now to what was in the Pentateuch. It's that seed that is to be the Savior that Paul spelled out, and he says, that seed is Christ. Now he says, I'm going to set up thy seed after thee. I'm sending through you. The family now of David will be the one through whom the Savior is coming. Now, that's bottling it in to a pretty close parenthesis, you see. It's closed in now, and we can follow a very direct route from now on. But the question will be, which son of David? Because he had quite a few. Then we find the seed here is only mentioned once. Now, let's move on, but we have something else mentioned which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. Now you have the word kingdom mentioned three times. We'll take it up when we come to the 12, 13, and 16. And the kingdom always means a king. You can't have a kingdom without a king. That's my reason for believing today that the kingdom of heaven has not yet been set upon the earth. The king is not here. When he comes, you'll have the kingdom. You can't have a kingdom without the presence of the king. And so the kingdom means there's coming through the line of David a king that is to reign. Now he says, I will establish his kingdom. Now he shall build a house for my name, Solomon, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He promises now to Solomon a throne that through Solomon the throne will be established. We can know that much, but that's all he promised to Solomon. And this is a very fine distinction to make here because to David he's promised a house, he's promised a seed, he's promised a kingdom, but to Solomon only a throne. And the throne rights will come through Solomon, but the seed will come through David Oh, my, how accurate the Word of God is. Now, will you notice this, what he says? God says, He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, I think he's moving on down through the line of this family. I think it includes Solomon. I think it includes the Lord Jesus, too. Listen to him. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of man and with the stripes of the children of man. Now, somebody says, now, I know that was fulfilled in Solomon. 
Well, what about Christ? You're not going to say tonight that if he commit iniquity, I'll chasten him and with the rod of man and with the stripes of the children of man. And do you know that's exactly what I'm going to say? Well, somebody says then there was sin in Christ. No, but there was sin put on Christ. God says that when he was made sin for us, then what happened? The stripes are laid upon him. And with his stripes, what? We are healed. May I say to you that you have here one of the most marvelous prophecies, even of the fact that there is coming one in the house, the seed, the kingdom, and the throne of David, and that one is to bear the stripes of the sons of man. Is he a sinner? No. He took my sin. That's the reason that they had to whip him. That's the reason that he had to die. He had no sins of his own, but he's bearing. He was made sin for us. He's bearing our sins. Now, will you notice this? Tremendous prophecy. I will be his father. He shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of man and with the stripes of the children of man. Now, but my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before thee. And thine house, now notice this, thy house, Thy kingdom, thy throne shall be established forever. That's a tremendous prophecy. Thy house, thy kingdom, thy throne shall be established forever. Now there's coming through the line of David a king who's going to sit upon a throne. He's going to rule this earth and his throne and his kingdom are going to be established forever. Now, there's something that we need to face right here. And we need to say it. If Christ is not, if the Lord Jesus Christ born 1900 years ago is not the fulfillment of this prophecy, then we can forget it because there's nobody else to fulfill it. And that's the interesting thing that after he came to this earth, the genealogies that were in the temple apparently destroyed. And from that day on, there's been no one that could fulfill this. But those genealogies, even during the Babylonian captivity and the burning by Nebuchadnezzar, were kept intact and taken to Babylon and brought back. Read Ezra and Nehemiah. They came back, and those genealogies are on display. We're on display. The Gospel of Matthew was never challenged by the Jews. Now, they, you remember, made up all of this concerning his resurrection. They said, you say that they came and stole the body away. But they never did say, go into the temple and check the genealogy and you'll find out it's inaccurate. They didn't say that. Why? Because they had checked it and it happened to be accurate. Therefore, you don't question that. He is the only one that could fulfill this prophecy. That is another thing that makes this one of the most amazing prophecies in the Word of God. Now, let's follow through on this. This prophecy doesn't affect theologians today or the church at all. But what effect did it have in that day? And that's the thing that interests me and concerns me. Was it considered important? Did the people of that day look upon it as being a very important prophecy? First of all, let's see how David felt about it. In Psalm 89... And I want to read this because this is very important. Psalm 89, verse 34, he says, My covenant will I not break 
nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. That's what God is saying now. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. Listen to this. His seed. Notice that. His seed shall endure forever. Where is his seed today? Well, his seed is yonder at God's right hand tonight, friends. Don't go to Bethlehem this year. He's not there. He's tonight at God's right hand. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. And if the sun's not out yonder in the heavens somewhere tonight, then God may go back on this promise. But as long as the sun appears to this earth as it does, you can write it down that God intends for the seed of David to endure. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. And then you have this word selah, which shouldn't be read. It's nothing in the world but a grammatical term that either means well, some think it means stop, look, and listen. And I think probably that's what it means. God says, stop, look, and listen. This is important. I do not lie to David. His seed shall have one to sit upon the throne of David forever. And there's one to take that throne when God's ready, my friend. And he came to this earth. Now, that was God's oath to this man David. Now, the point is, how did this affect people of that day? Did you know that this became the theme song of the prophets? And the darker the night got for those people when it looked as if the entire nation would be destroyed, that's when the prophets spoke the loudest. And that's when the light burned the brightest. And they said, he's out yonder. He's coming. One to sit on David's throne. Let me just turn up two or three, and I don't want to be wearisome tonight. But when you look at several passages, I've turned here to Jeremiah 23, but let me go first to Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9 first. Will you notice what it said here? We only take verse 6, and we like to have this at Christmas time, and it's not your Christmas gift. For unto us a child is born. Who's he talking to? The nation Israel. This one is peculiarly to the nation Israel. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Listen. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It doesn't depend on you or the United Nations. He'll do it in his good time. And somebody says, the skeptic says, well, why doesn't he begin to move? Because, my friend, he has eternity ahead of him. And you and I have very little time left. But he's got eternity. He doesn't have to be in a hurry. And he's moving according to his plan and his purpose. Now, will you notice, it's upon the throne of David. And that became the theme song of the prophets. fact of the matter is, 
Some of them sound like a stuck record. They just can't get off of it. That's all they talk about. Now let me turn over to the 23rd chapter of Jeremiah. Another one of these prophecies. Verse 5, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord. Now where was Jeremiah when he prophesied? In Jerusalem. Under what circumstances? Nebuchadnezzar's already marching toward Jerusalem to destroy it. Pretty dark, isn't it, Jeremiah? No, Jeremiah says it's not dark. says these people have sinned, and God's going to punish them. But God has a purpose, and this is his purpose. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I'll raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. And where you turn in the Old Testament, I say to you tonight, you can turn page after page after page of the Old Testament. This is all they talked about. A king is coming in the line of David. In his days, Judah shall be saved. Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Our Jehovah Sidkenu. He's coming. The Lord our righteousness. That's wonderful. The Lord, our righteousness. And somebody says, when that throne is established yonder and this holy one sits there, then, ooh, Vernon McGee, it's going to be bad for you. My friend, the one sitting on that throne's my righteousness. <laughs> he's not against me. He's for me. He died for me, and he's made over to me all that he is, and I stand complete in him. And my friend, if I've got the judge on my side, I'm not going to worry. He's the Lord Jehovah said to you, This is the one that's coming. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord liveth, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country from all countries, whither I have driven them, that they shall dwell in their land. God will bring them up by miracle. The present return of the nation Israel is not the fulfillment of prophecy for the coming of the Messiah. Their return to the land is a preparation not for Christ, but for Antichrist. And that's the reason I can't get enthusiastic about their return today. Because they are back in that land to receive Antichrist, not Christ. When he brings them back to that land, he'll bring them back by miracle. So much so that it'll be greater than when he brought them out of Egypt. Now, when God brought them out of Egypt, it was impossible to get them out. They were slaves. The Egyptians had something that no other people had. They were chariots. Notice the emphasis put upon chariots. No army could stand against them. Egypt was invincible for over one millennium. Egypt and Rome have ruled this earth more than any other two nations. And they had the chariots. Well, these people are helpless. And you remember when the children of Israel saw the Egyptians coming with the chariots, they said, my, they were ready to quit. They told Moses, let's get back to Egypt. We made a mistake coming out here. Now, God delivered them. God delivered them by miracle. So much so that the oldest religious service today is what? The Passover, the night God delivered them out of Egypt by miracle. They still remember it. 
But God says the day is coming when I bring them back into that land by so much greater miracle than I brought them out of Egypt, they're going to forget the deliverance out of Egypt. It'll sink into insignificance. It'll be peanuts compared to the miracle of the future. We have not seen the fulfillment of prophecy. They're returning back to receive Antichrist, not Christ today. David's son is yet to come and establish the kingdom here upon these prophecies. They're quite remarkable, by the way. Now, I want to go to another one in the Old Testament, and this will be all I look at in the Old Testament. Here is one of the remarkable prophecies of the Old Testament passed by concerning David. It's in Amos, the ninth chapter, the last chapter of Amos. Verse 8, now this speaks of that which was fulfilled in the Babylonian captivity and that which followed. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth. That's severe language. God says, these people that I promised I wouldn't destroy, they're so sinful I'll blot them out, saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. And you remember, they were slaughtered like pigs at the destruction of Jerusalem. For lo, I will command, I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in the sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. Now God says, I'm going to scatter them throughout the earth. And my friend, they're scattered throughout the earth tonight. You couldn't go many places that you wouldn't find a Jew tonight. Now, will you notice this? For lo, I will command, I'll sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. You see, their argument was the argument that I hear today in this country. We're the only nation sending missionaries. We're still a Christian nation. God will not destroy us. Where'd you get that idea? The nation Israel did happen to be their nation. And there were many of these Jews walking around saying, God won't touch us. We're his chosen people. God says, I'll destroy you. I'll kill every one of you. And whether you like it or not in this so-called civilized day, God destroyed that generation. But God says, there was that remnant. I didn't lose a one of them. If one grain falls to the ground, God says, I'll pick that grain up. I will preserve that grain. I'll save them. Now, will you notice, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. That's the dark day for those people. God's through with them, I guess. No, will you listen? In that day, listen, that day is always the millennium. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old. God says, I'm going to make good what I said to David. There will come one in his line. There is coming one in his line that's going to sit upon his throne. In that day, I'll raise up the tabernacle of David. Now, the early church was having a meeting, the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, the first council of the church, and they had a big problem. 
And thank God that Paul the Apostle is there and Simon Peter was there and James were there. Thank God for those men because there happened to be there some Judaizers and they said that if Gentiles want to get saved, they've got to go through the Mosaic law. They've got to come in as we did. And so they decided that they're saved by grace and that you don't have to go through the Mosaic law, that you come to God just as you are just as a sinner, you come without religion, you come without anything, you just come to him, and he'll save you if you come in faith to him. Now, having done that, James gets up, and he apparently was the senior, and he got up and he addressed the council. He said, men and brethren, you know, we've misunderstood the scriptures, this is exactly what the Word of God says, that he's going to call out from among the Gentiles a people. And that's what he's getting ready to do. And friends, after 1900 years, that's still what he's doing tonight. He's still calling out a people to his name. Now listen to James. After this, after what? After he gets through calling out a people to his name, I will build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. Will God make good? Yes, it's in the future. It's when he comes again. And that's the reason he comes again as king of kings and lord of lords. You know, I must confess, I get a little disturbed. It doesn't look good outside today. The world's in a mess, and this country's in the biggest one of all of them. We are in a mess. What is a hope today? After this, I will return. I will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. After what? Well, I'm calling out a people for a minute. Yeah, Lord, but it's getting rough down here in Los Angeles. Don't you think you could sort of shorten it and come on and let's get things moving? God says, look, I know you're impatient. You're in a hurry. You can't see very far. But you see, I've come out of eternity. I'm going into eternity. And you know this little thing that's taking place down there? You'd be surprised how small it really is. I intend to carry out my program. And after all, don't you have faith to look and see that I've carried it out up to the present moment? I'm doing today exactly what I said I'd do. I'm calling out from among the Gentiles of people. After this, I will return and build again the tabernacle of David. You know where I want to go now? To the New Testament. Luke 1, 31. The angel Gabriel appears to Mary. Now listen to what he says. Verse 30. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb. Bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. Now, Dr. Luke wrote this. You'll bring forth a son. You'll call his name Jesus. The seed. The seed of the woman. Way back in Genesis, God said to the serpent, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between her seed, thy seed. Here's the seed of the woman. Now, he's coming. Will you notice? He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. Did you know there's no title greater than that? He's the son of the highest. He's God. Mary, he's coming. This is the one that's been promised down through the centuries. But wait a minute. 
He shall be great. He shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Who was the first doubter of the virgin birth? Mary herself. Don't tell me this. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. This is the fulfillment of all the hope and the promise of the Old Testament now is anchored in this woman here. The seed of the woman is to come. He shall sit upon the throne of his father David. Now, in closing, let me turn back and let you look at something, and then we'll be through. David, Solomon, Nathan. And you'd have to go back to something that's quite interesting here. May I say this to me is one of the most wonderful things. In Luke 3, 31, it says, which was the son of Melia, which was the son of Menon, which was the son of Mattatha, which was the son of Nathan, which was the son of David. David, Solomon, Nathan, through this line, Joseph came. That's in Matthew. But Jeconias is in there. And I'll not turn to this, though. Jeremiah 36, 30, God says, I've rejected him, and he'll never have a son. Nobody will sit on the throne of David through the line of Solomon. That is, they'll not be a bloodline, but through this line, God has already told Solomon, remember? You get the throne, but you don't get the seed. You don't get the house, but you get the throne. So through Joseph, the Lord Jesus gets the title, the legal title to the throne of David. But through Nathan, David through Nathan, down to Mary, that's Mary's genealogy in Luke, he gets the blood title to the throne of David. He's the only one that can fulfill it. May I say that goes through the Word of God, this line, a bloodline that's leading to the Lord Jesus Christ. May I say to you tonight, this is one of the most remarkable things that is possible. And I close tonight where I began. It's a rainy night in Jerusalem. Winds blowing. Rain's beating on this new palace that Hiram has built for David. And David, he's lying there. He's a, oh, what a man he was. He loved God. He had a capacity for God. Oh, to have a capacity for God. To long for him and to love him. He said, as the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Do you long for him? Oh, it's so easy at Christmas time to sing jingle bells and old little town of Bethlehem and go through the motions and say, oh, it's wonderful Jesus has come. But my friend tonight, do you really love him? If you'd like to listen to today's study again, visit ttb.org. And to invite family members or friends to join you in our daily adventure on the Bible bus, 
Call and request a pack of our free Listen Bible Bus Passes. They're roughly the size of a business card. Each one's got a QR code and our website address to help them easily find our current study. Just call 1-800-65-BIBLE or email us at BibleBus at ttb.org. I'm Steve Schwetz, and I'll meet you back here next time. Join us each weekday for our five-year daily study through the whole Word of God. Check for times on this station or look for Through the Bible in your favorite podcast store and always at ttb.org.